On the subject of birthdays, the great Roman playwright Titus Massius Plautus once said, Let us celebrate the occasion with wine and sweet words. Sounds good to me, but for fun, let's also throw in a podcast. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Rain town in the nighttime. Endless yellow taxis. Waiting for the moment when the party will end. Rain town in the nighttime. You still heard nothing from me. But I've become invisible. So what message could I send? Saturdays are lonely And Sundays you're alone Still checking for the signal For the buzz on the phone, phone, phone You can travel for a thousand miles You can spend a thousand nights alone You can lose your way so easily And never ever make it home So come the glorious music of stars a band which features my guest today on the program torque campbell let me tell you a little bit about stars and torque campbell all right so what was all this talk about birthdays no it's not mine but listen it was torque campbell's birthday and he decided to spend the morning with me a complete stranger who does a podcast and eats weird food and has probably too many Stone Roses posters on his wall for a man of 50. But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about stars. And frankly, when it comes to this Canadian outfit, there's a lot to talk about. Over the course of their brilliant career, which got started around 1999, they've put out nine winning and truly magical albums, including Set Yourself on Fire and the Polaris Prize-nominated efforts in our bedroom after the war, and The Five Ghosts. Their last full-length album was 2017's There Is No Love in Fluorescent Light, and I know that was four years ago, but don't worry. New music is coming. Stars play a ravishing blend of jangly chamber pop, breezy new wave, and melancholic indie rock. They fall somewhere between Prefab Sprout and Broken Social Scene, and their songs are thoughtful, quirky, moving, inspiring and wrenching in all the right ways. They can evoke the bittersweet memories of the past, and they can conjure the hope and optimism of the future. They've played Coachella and the Way Home Festival in Toronto, and their music has appeared in Gossip Girl, One Tree Hill, The Vampire Diaries, Skins, and Warehouse 13. The British-born Torkel Campbell is a musician, an actor on stage and film, a playwright, and the host of the Basement Review podcast with Jason Collette, who was in Broken Social Scene. Aside from his work in Stars, Campbell has also put out albums with Memphis, and he has a solo project under the name Dead Child Star. He's also a great follow on social media, so, you know, 
follow him. I could go on, but I won't stop. I love this band. I think Torkel is one of the most compelling figures in music, and I was really looking forward to this chat, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Here's me and Torkel Campbell of Stars on his birthday, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Another one. Another step closer to death, Alex. That's, <laughs> that's, that's how I think after you turn 40, people should not say happy birthday. It should just be birthday. They right. should just yell birthday at you like a warning. Yeah. <laughs> birthday. Have you, yeah. have you chosen a plot? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I turned 50 in, uh, in June. And oh, I was wow, like, congratulations. I'm one year behind you, man. One year behind me. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, today is uh, 49 for you. Yes. Very yeah. distinguished. <laughs> That's, you know what? That's what I keep saying. I don't know. If it's it true. is. It, it's, it, what else do we have other than some form of distinguishment that we've lived half a century and that we're still here and I don't know, we're still, we still aren't in jail, right. you know, right now anyway. We're so not jailed. Good. You know, as soon as I turned 50, this amazing thing happened where I went, oh, I don't really give a fuck anymore about anything. I'm, I feel like that's what I'm looking forward to about 50 is like, fuck it. I'm not, there's no possibility I can turn this around. (laughs) This is it. I'm going in one direction and I'm I'm doing my thing, you know? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, If someone shouts birthday at you, it almost sounds like an accusation. Yes. I'm getting older. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) birthday correct yes yeah. well you're very kind to spend your birthday uh with with me so, so it's a pleasure you. man i i've been doing a podcast this year as well i know everybody on earth does a podcast but i started one a year ago with my friend and it's been kind of a lifesaver for me i you know what i love is i i i always want to do podcasts because it's not social media you actually get to talk to people in a long form and have an exchange that is genuine and not just reactive and binary and governed by the algorithm, you know? So I feel like as much as it's become popular and podcasts are ubiquitous and everybody talks about that, I think they're ubiquitous because they're actually a great form. They're a, a really great form, you know, and they're old fashioned in a lot of ways, but they, they travel through the new technology. So it's like, it's a great way of infiltrating and sort of fucking with the, the, um, the rhythms of the internet, I think. So happy to yeah, be here. I agree with you. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with you. And I also think that it reveals there's kind of, a, a, kind of a, an elasticity to a conversation that previously wasn't really explored through uh, talking points like what were your influences growing up and exactly, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So it's kind of liberating to be able to sit down and have a conversation about how shitty it is to turn 50 or how. Yeah, yeah, know. because that's really where people find out about the, the work that they're interested in or the artists they're interested in. You don't find out by 
you know, quizzing them about their latest album and whether it's their best one yet. You, you find out by just sort of talking to people like everyone and they reveal their humanity or lack thereof. And, you know, you see some side of them that is beyond the work that informs the work. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great form to talk about art and stuff in. It is. Sure. And, and I have also found that I'm a writer and I have found that through all these conversations I've been having, it's been helping me get my head around the process. Uh -huh. I found also that, you know, when a band comes to you with a new album, it's not really new. It's been, it's been done for two years, probably. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. And so they'd yeah. rather not talk about it. They'd rather talk Absolutely. about what what's cooking now, right? What yeah. they're working on now, so. Yeah, it's all, and it, it does turn into, as much as you try to avoid it, talking about a record turns into a repetitious exercise. Like you are just, you're bound to repeat yourself about things because if, you know, if you say it works, the first time you say it, it works, you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. I think I, you know, talked about my record in an interesting way. So you just keep talking about it that way. And I don't know, man, I, I, I always like talking about other people's records more than my own, that's for sure. Well, yeah, and, I, and I'm sure that once you do an interview where you go, oh, that was cool, I threaded that needle pretty pretty well, and then you yeah. find yourself repeating it in a kind of worse way in the next interview. Exactly, yes, until eventually you just run out of steam and don't say much at all. <laughs> right, and let, right. the bass player, let the bass player take over at that point. That's when you let the bass player talk. <laughs> <laughs> what, when, when you um, got your podcast started, was it a reaction to the pandemic or was it cooking before that? It actually, funnily enough, it wasn't at all. It was something that me and my buddy had been talking about doing for years because we're both political people, you know, interested in politics and social policy and we're artists. And so we were talking for a long time about trying to make a podcast about the intersection between art and culture and politics. And um, we started it. We had a plan. We like, okay, let's do it this week. And then the shit hit the fans. So the first, it has been very much a diary of this experience. Like the first episode was in lockdown and here we are, you know, and we're still doing it weekly. So it's amazing. Like it has grounded me in something when it, it's been a year of major identity loss, I would say for me, you know, after 25 years, not being around the people that I make music with and not being on tour and not playing shows and all that stuff has sent me into a kind of, um, what's the word? Uh, it, it, it's very disorienting and and you lose your sense of who you are unfortunately i wasn't i didn't know that so much of my identity was wrapped in and up in what i do and i think that's something a lot of us have learned this year is like all a lot of that anxiety came from just like fuck man what do i do with my day if i don't do what people think i should do with my day you know so um it's been cool to talk to him and just have that discussion every week and kind of go through the process of experiencing this and as artists, of course, you know, this has been an extinction level event. So we've been trying to help people to find resources and get people on to talk about how to survive this psychologically, financially, whatever, you know. I think that the extinction level element has been minimized. Um, I agree with you. Right. I mean, I, yeah. I, think, I think that in terms of artists, I found that they were sort of a little amused at first, like, oh, I have time now to do some things. And yeah. then as time wore on and you could see the financial worry crossing their faces by month four or five and six, yeah. um, 
and I, I, I keep mentioning this, but I spoke to, um, to Neon Trees and, and, and he was sort of saying like, hey, when this is over, certain bands won't even be around anymore. Yeah, And that's when it first dawned on me where I went, holy cow, like how are groceries being put on the table? And so where the crisis element in the arts community, I just don't think it's been addressed in a way that it needs to be. Um, it, it's extraordinary to me, the, the complete uh, lack of even the mentioning the word art from most politicians during the last year. Now, I know obviously there, every single part of the world has been stressed and there are people who have, millions of people have died and millions more people who are grieving that loss and people losing their jobs, frontline workers risking, I mean, the, the litany of people with legit complaints right now is fucking endless, right? Yeah. But, but the, the, from a public policy standpoint, to think that you can revive cities without a night economy, without culture, is like so unrealistic and so um, unwise. And that to me is why it's not that it's special pleading that I, I feel like, oh, you know, poor artists, we've, we've gone through so much. Everybody's gone through so much. But if you don't recognize that bringing back nightclubs and bringing back movies and bringing back plays and theater and opera and all that stuff is what will make paying the rent in downtown Los Angeles worth it, what are you going to do exactly in cities? What's the plan? So to me, it's just it's not only bad for artists that it hasn't been talked enough about, but it's bad for everybody because there is no plan, really. There is no plan to get us back. I mean, I talked to our booking agent yesterday. Realistically, next year, man, you know, for a tour, like that's how it's looking. And yeah, there's people being confident and bullish and booking shows in September. And, you know, I don't think uh, if they do it, I don't see how you make money doing it because there hasn't been a plan to create a, a safe atmosphere and an atmosphere that makes people want to spend money and go back and see shows. So I don't know. It's, um, it's tough times. It's tough times for sure. It is. And I've always found that with Canadian artists, if I, if I get an album, I turn it over, it says, you know, Canadian arts council. It's always, there seems like yeah. there's a lot more artist support in Canada than there is here in the United States. But can you at least, tell me like what's going on? Like how are Canadian artists being supported or do you think that they're not? It's been appalling. Uh -huh. It's been really, really appalling. Um, I think it's been crushing actually psychologically because you know, you're right, there is a big grant system in Canada and artists work even in the realm of rock and roll, artists work in many ways on the not-for-profit model, right? So you get grants to make a record, you get grants to go on tour, you know, if you pay that grant back, that's great. And it, you stand a better chance of getting another grant. But if you don't, no one's going to make you pay that money back. So we psychologically in this country look upon art um, in a very problematic way. That is to say, we look upon art as something that is government supported and therefore exists in order to be good for you. <laughs> and when society feels like they are propping something up that is being given to them uh, um, to make them better, they hate it, they resent it. And uh, because we're such a small country and because there's such vast distances between cities, right? Like when we tour the States, we can play St. Louis, Chicago, um, you know, Detroit, New York, all day by day, we drive to each of those cities, one to the next. 
Here, you get to Vancouver, start at Vancouver, it's 17 hours to Calgary through the mountains. That's the next city you can play. And then it's nine hours to Saskatchewan, you know? So right. it's like, it, it is, um, it's, it's very hard here to build your career within Canada and have it be a profitable thing. All that said, the government has set up this system where artists are very dependent on the government, where artists have built an economy around the grant system. And then when we all lost our work, there was a long period of time where there was no clarity on whether we were allowed to collect the, the CERB, what's called CERB, which is the um, guaranteed income basically for the period of the pandemic. Canadians were allowed to access this money, but we didn't know which category we fell into. We didn't know whether we qualified or not. Then a lot of people applied, and then we were told by the government, all you unemployed artists who got $18,000 last year have to pay it all back. And then the government backpedaled on that because there was outcry. But in general, you know, what's happened is that the major cultural institutions have been supported. The doors are still open there. There's still arts administrators working in those places, but no art is being made. And none of that money has been funneled to individual artists who are struggling to pay the rent. And so I think whether you're in the States or you're in Britain or you're in Canada, the big thing to watch out for if you're a lover of culture, if you're a cultural activist, or if you're a maker of art, is whether your government has a, has a plan, not just to prop up institutions, which I'm not against, you know, I want there to be a Metropolitan Museum of Art, I want there to be a Stratford Festival, but if that money just sits in those institutions and keeps the lights on, but it doesn't actually affect the lives of individual artists, there's no way back from this because people will leave, people will quit, you know, as you say, bands won't exist anymore. Uh, I know, fuck man, 20 people who have changed careers in the last year. Really? You know, so, oh yeah, absolutely. And they're never going back. You know, they're never going back. So it's a big, big seismic crushing thing. And in many ways it's revealed all kinds of injustices and, and um, dysfunctional systems within the cultural framework as well as within the wider framework of society that we're now left to deal with, right? Like the fact that the only money we made was from touring is messed up. Stars had 150 million streams on all streaming platforms last year. That amounts to $80,000, dude. Split six ways minus taxes. Like, are you kidding me? What, at what point is a career valid? How many hundreds of millions of people need to listen to my music before I get to make a living? So that level of dysfunction, that wasn't brought on by COVID. But when COVID happened, it just turned the dial up to 50 on that, you know? So it's, I think the opportunity exists to do something about it if we talk about it and we make sure that politicians know that we give a damn about this stuff. And that's why, like, I always urge people when I'm talking about this stuff, it's great to go on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and talk about it. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> no. You got to write to your politicians. If you care about this stuff, write to your local representative to your federal representative and say, I care about art and I want you to save art and I want you to spend some money. I want you to get artists involved in public policy. I want you to talk about art when you make speeches because then they'll do it. And if we don't say anything, they won't do it. They don't care what we say on Twitter. You know what I mean? No, and they, the, the I'm gonna get back to that sort of night economy you were talking about because the night yeah. economy 
is where I've always spent my money. I mean, the yeah. night economy is where I've lived, right? Yeah. No worries. And I and I think that the the resuscitation of the night economy is it's almost it's not enough, right? Like it's like yeah. okay, we're we're opening because right now in America their main concern is how do we get people back into sporting events? That's right. the night economy. That's all they right. care about, right? Yeah, that's all um, they care about. That's Major all they care sports. about. And that's not, that's just not where um, I've spent my life. I've always spent my yeah. life in the night economy. And so yeah. when you talk about that, and I, and I love that phrase too, but the idea of resuscitating it is what you're saying is it's not enough just to, res just to open up the clubs again. That's not it. It's not, that's not no. part of it. Sorry, it's my birthday. So people are calling me. I apologize. <laughs> go, go ahead. Right. So it's not enough just to, just to open up a movie theater again. There has to be a more comprehensive plan in place. Yeah. And I think too, a big concern of mine, especially in like the culture side of things, not necessarily movies, but cultural institutions, because they are dependent on government money, they are, there's a lot invested. Oh my God, leave me alone. Um, there's a lot in, I'm just being bombed with love. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot invested in, um, being having a public face that is virtuous and so my concern is that we will get involved in a lot of performative hygiene theater that costs a fortune that doesn't actually make anybody safer that nobody in professional sports is doing that you know the rest of the world will move on and will still be like spending a thousand dollars a week making everybody wash their hands and stuff you know it's that is so much a part of of modern cultural institutions is virtue signaling. And so it, it's like, I don't want us to, in my opinion, once vaccines are widely available for several months and everyone has had a chance to get them, of course you take every measure you can to make people safe when they come into your place of business. But I gotta move on. I gotta make a living and I can't make a living at 50% capacity. So people have to make their choices after that. Do you know what I mean? People have to decide whether they are not cool with the risk. I do think, you know, you're gonna be seeing masks in places like that for a long, long time, um, which is cool, man. I love not getting a fucking cold all year, you know? And yeah. as long as people can still have fun and party and make their choice, I'm cool with taking those measures. But if we get too caught up in like, how do we do this? Everybody has to follow this rope to their seat and sit eight feet apart. It's not. We can't make money like that. So, you know, I'm hoping that people are sane as we move forward, but there's absolutely no reason to think they will be. No. <laughs> so, no. so, you know. Why would they suddenly get a dose why of would, humanity? Yeah. Why would this begin all of, out right? of the clear blue sky? Yeah. What, what the hell? Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, and also with, with the variants sort of bubbling around, that you talk about an extinction level event, if the variants prove to be as dangerous as we think, and it's three or four years where we're doing this and waiting, that could just be career ending for a lot of people. And it absolutely could be. Yeah. I, 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 um, I don't know enough about that stuff to really know whether that's a likelihood. It seems to me most people are saying that isn't a likelihood, but they'll deal with it somehow. Moderna is yeah. already making a vaccine for the variant. And, um, but you know, that's the thing is like, we live in this panic uh you know we, we we live in a panic world in a panic economy people are making a lot of money off this fear 
and the fear is legit, but now they've made all this money. You know, I, I was talking to my friend the other day. It's like September 11th happened 21, 20 years later. I'm throwing my, I'm giving my bottle of water to a dude at the security counter on the premise, I guess, that it's filled with a deadly gas, which I will release when I get on the plane, killing everyone. He then takes this bottle of water and throws it in the garbage can next to him. <laughs> it's like, but we're still doing that 20 years later. Right. So like what crazy shit is gonna, you know, 20 years on are we gonna be doing because of this? So it's kind of exhausting to think about that stuff when, you're, when your business depends on just getting people in a room and making them sweaty, you know? Um, I'm hoping that people's hunger to be back together will supersede their fear, you know? That's the hope. What is the morale of your bandmates? Like, how have you guys stayed together in terms of, I mean, is there, is there, there must be attendant anxiety. I think there is, you know, my bandmates are very, um, there's a lot of stoic people in my band. There's a lot of uh, tough folks. I'm not one of them. Um, I'm definitely not one of them. Amy and I, I think have a harder time than the guys do uh, because we are much more social people than them. And, you know, because Amy and I have built this relationship about writing songs together that is so, so much a part of it is just us being together and us being friends and hanging out and getting drunk and talking and, um, and that's not happening. So that's been stressful. But you know, the thing is, dude, is like, I, I realized I, Chris Seligman, who I started the band with, I've known him 42 years, you know? <laughs> I've known him since I was seven years old, right? Yeah. So uh, it's like, this almost, it's weird. When I do see them, I saw them, I guess, in September, I went and worked on some songs. And we've been trading back and forth, making songs together over the internet. But when I see them, I know it'll just be like, oh, hey, how you doing? There they are. Same shit, different day, you know. I, I, we've done so much together that I think it's kind of uh, impenetrably bonded. But I miss them. And I, I feel there's been a lot of... Uh, personally for me a lot of anxiety around as I said just like if I'm not in that room working on the record with them who am I and what am I doing and, and I've I've made a lot of other things happen for myself I've, I'm working on a ton of things but none of them are stars which is you know a world and a way of looking at the world that is completely within itself that I that I love so I'm, I'm looking I'm going to go there in May and we're going to work together and that'll be great. Well, in terms of artistic anxiety of an identity and and all the things we were talking about, the financial anxiety has that yeah. has that been a, a place for you of of palpable like heart racing anxiety, or are you pretty calm about it for now? Uh, there was heart racing anxiety right like when we lost all our gigs for a year in twenty four hours, and I lost all my side hustle shit in twenty four hours. That was terrifying. Yeah. Like last March. And I set about very quickly, like just hustling to get work, to make work. I played online shows. I got some commissions. I, so after that, I, I managed to, and then, you know, in Canada, we did have CERB and we did have unemployment and we had, we had government support. And I, I, I cannot imagine how difficult it has been for American artists and people in general. It's hard to believe that your government has only given you guys two grand. It's 
craziness. Like we look at that, I mean, Canada has a myriad of problems, including being seemingly incapable of getting vaccines in people's arms. But to think of a society where that happens and then you're just left to fall. Yeah. I mean, the cruelty of that system, of that level of capitalism is is hard to compute. <laughs> it really is. So, you know, we had a lot of government support and I've managed to piece together a bunch of stuff and I've I've I'm been commissioned to write a play and I'm getting paid to do this podcast and so there's I'm making it I'm making it and stars are still paying us so we were always on salary so luckily for stars you know we were we managed to get on unemployment insurance because we've been paying into that and really the big 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 thing for us has been patreon you know patreon is our major source of income now and um that's been an incredible game changer for us because it, it works as well as we want it to work. As much as we put into it, it gives to us, you know? And, and it, it affords people who really are patrons of the arts, and there are lots of them, the opportunity to, to do something that they like to do. Like they wanna use Spotify, they wanna use Apple Music, they wanna look at YouTube videos. They also don't wanna feel like they're ripping artists off. So they spend that extra five bucks a month and, and it's incredible, like the, the generosity and the sort of involvement of people is amazing. So that's been really, really great. And, uh, you know, oddly, dude, and I think a lot of people I know have said this, I have more money in the bank quite often now than I did when life was normal because I never leave my fucking house. So it's like, I never spend, you know, that, that $100 a week that just got blown on my bloody Valentine reissues and bullshit like that, you know, it's like, oh no, I absolutely need this fourth <laughs> copy of Loveless because it's got liner notes by Alan McGee in it or whatever, you know, um, I haven't bought that stuff. So it's like the month ends, I pay my rent. I'm like, holy shit, I'm not destitute, you know? Yeah. So fingers crossed. We, we spend our money in the same way. It's like, oh, there's a box set by the chills. I need <laughs> Hey, I mean, who doesn't need a box set by the chills? Yeah. Everybody needs that. I, I need it. And Thanks for telling me about it. I'm going to go buy it now. Yes, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, you know, well, I, I know exactly what you mean about that. And, you know, the idea also that, you know, spending the money in the night economy for other people as well. So there hasn't been like going yeah. out to dinner, going out to a bar, going out to see a show, going out. Um, so you're right that there hasn't been that kind of depletion of resources, which I'm, all, I'm more than happy to deplete for, for in those. Well, places. that's how you spread it in the community, right? Like uh, $1 spent on art produces $7 in the community. One job in the arts world produces three jobs outside the arts world. Uh, you know, there's waiters and taxi drivers and hoteliers and tourism people. And like, it, it's all this ecosystem of people having fun, right? The world of people having fun they go do their job and then they have a little extra money and they spend it on something that feeds their soul and um netflix ain't gonna cut it like i just it's not you know that's not the end of this story it can't be it just can't be no it, it better not be <laughs> it better not be yeah better not be there's been a lot of talk of love but that don't amount to nothing you can evoke the stars above But that doesn't make it something And the only way to last And the only way to live it Is 
there's a real challenge in terms of also a comfort level um, with other people. And in, in terms of your, you seem like a guy who keeps in touch with your friends. Um, you know, you seem like a, like a real, someone who's hyperverbal like me, where you'll, you'll yeah. you on getting on the phone as long as, as you have to be to chat with your, with your pals. Yeah, I love talking to my friends. Although I would say this year, it's been hard sometimes actually, because I think, and I've heard this from other people as well, like every day is the same. So there's not much news to share. And also when you're going, when you have those days, which I, I, I don't know, I, personally speaking, they're getting fewer and far between, thankfully. But for a long time, you know, one day a week was just like, you were hit by a fucking truck. Like, I have never really had depression in my life, but I felt it this year. I felt days where I was just exhausted by the thought of being alive, you know, and exhausted by the thought of the future. And, and I think this might be a particularly male problem. Calling your friends when you're in that state of mind is something that I often don't do, which I, it always makes me feel better. I always, you know, feel elevated when I finally do it. But there's this sense of not wanting to burden people and a sense of, you know, what I don't want to show this to the world. I don't want to show this part of myself to the world. And um, that's been a really hard part of this experience. But I also think I'm being optimistic here, but I do think this has made everybody a little more uh, sappy, for lack of a better word. Like, I think there's going to be a higher tolerance level for people being a bit of a mess moving forward in the future, in the future or having a day where they cry or, yeah. or having a day where they tell people that they love them. You know, I, I think that that stuff that is so often avoided in our world um, has come to be thought of as a treasure during this time, the ability to like get it on the table and tell people what you feel. So I'm hoping that that part of this world will be brought forward into the post pandemic world, you know, that emotion won't be so um, under the table all the time and hidden by people, you know? Yeah, because some days you, you just feel like Nick Drake and you're like, nobody wants yeah, to hear Nick Drake. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but the thing is, I think people did want to hear from Nick Drake and had yeah. picked up the phone a few times that might have helped. It turns out people did, it took 30 years, like Nick, you should have gone on tour, dude. You know, you know what's so weird about Nick Drake? I don't know if you've ever heard him speak. No. But he has absolutely cut glass, upper class English accent. That's how Nick Drake talks. He talks like a queen. He literally, that's his accent. He was no like, idea. he was semi-aristocracy, like super, super, super upper class British guy. And absolutely you know, one of those accents. It's like, you just hear this beautiful, moody, like folk music, and then you're like, Nick, that was a great song. What's it about? Well, it's about flowers, you know, <laughs> and then it goes out into the fields. Absolutely marvelous. You're like, holy shit, dude. No wonder you didn't make it. No, no talking. No talking. No talking. Don't do that. <laughs> What's your next song? Play, the, play another song, dude. It comes, it comes across like Wordsworth. Yeah, like really, really not well. Not well. Poor yeah. old Nick. Poor old Nick. Poor old Nick. But I do yeah. think that it's that it's it is important to Nick Drake your friends because I do think yeah. you're right. Um, because sometimes the it, it's especially if you're going through the same thing and you're in the same industry, um, that's incredibly yeah. helpful. You can talk shop, but your friends who are musicians who are who are hanging it up, like you were saying, 
yeah. those conversations. And th- I mean, those must be heavy. You know, most of my friends who are hanging it up, frankly, are actors. Oh. Um, and I think that's telling. Like, definitely, you know, musicians have always had side hustles in a way. Like, I've known, you know, musicians are a, a very different kind of person in a strange way from an actor. Musicians tend to be more entrepreneurial in their personality. Actors, the whole system around which actors have been brought up is one of dependence, right? And waiting for the call, waiting for the audition, waiting to be told what you play, waiting for direction. There's so much disenfranchisement of the actor in the theater, in the world of theater and movies and television. It's a very abusive system. It really is. And, um, you know, I grew up in that world. My parents were actors. I was an actor all my life until I started Stars. My wife is an actor. Everybody I know, you know, I have family and my friends. And th- that's really where I've seen people leave. And it is hard. It is sad. But on another level, I think, as I say, it's like all of the cracks were revealed so clearly. And it gave people a chance to say, enough. You know, I've had enough. And it wasn't just that I can't, don't have the work now. It was that the work was precarious when I had it. And the work wasn't the kind of work that I wanted to make. And I didn't have any artistic control. And so I, I think that, you know, happiness in work comes from autonomy to a large degree, comes from your ability to affect the way you do it. So, you know, if you're a bus driver, you have some autonomy. You can greet people warmly with a smile. You know, you can give cute announcements. You can pull out into the lane a certain way. But you do have to drive that route. That is the route you drive. That's your assigned route. And it's the same with acting. It's like, yeah, there's pleasures to it, but there's also incredible restraint. And so, you know, musicians who are tend to be very arrogant people, I think, even when they're not making a living, they're like, just wait till you hear the next fucking song, man. It's going to be huge, <laughs> you know? So they, I haven't seen many of them leave, but my actor friends have gone through it. And I'm very proud of the people who decided to do something else. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of strength and a lot of positivity. It's a very positive thing to do, to change streams, right? It's not something you do out of fear. It's something you do out of hope. So to me, that's a great move in life. Yeah, and I think being being an actor, um, I you know... <laughs> it's such an emotional workout anyway. Uh, yeah. No pandemic, you know, where it's yeah. sort of like, you know, you booked it, you didn't book it and the waiting around and the, you know, reading sides and then, uh, and then putting yourself on tape and then waiting again. Oh my God, dude, it's just awful. It's absolutely awful. And I still have an agent. I haven't acted other than in my one man show that I wrote in years and years and years, but I still have this agent. And every once in a while I call him up and I'm like, Hey, you know, I should probably try to, get some acting work. I mean, why not? You know? And he, so he goes, okay. So he sends me these things. He's like, put yourself on tape. And it's like, okay, can I shoot myself instead? Is that okay? Do you mind if I just shoot myself in the face? Cause I can't do this. This is so awful. So many of the scripts are so bad, you know, and it's always the same stock characters and you're always doing the, Oh God, man. It's just, I don't know. Brave souls. Actors are brave souls. I admire them terribly. Is there a party that thinks like, boy, if I just if I just booked a Verizon commercial, that could well, take- I know. I mean, that's the thing. Of course, there is a part of me that thinks that, but somehow my laziness supersedes my ambition once again. Once again, my laziness supersedes my ambition. Story of my life. What are you gonna do? That's how you end up in a cult band, man. 
That's you know what I mean? Nailed <laughs> <laughs> it. How is, yeah. I spoke to uh, Cathal from Micro Disney and uh, oh, right. You're kidding me. I know. I, I, I oh imagine, my god. I love that band, right? Oh, dude. Huge, huge, huge band for me. Huge band. Me too. me too. And he told me that, like, he was like, you know, he said what you said, where he said the problem is, is that the the notion of saying to your partner, how was your day today, has been completely removed from the situation. Because it's like, yes, same as your day. So yeah. how has domesticity <laughs> been for you in, in with the year of that we've incurred? You know, it's been, I, I'm, I hesitate to say this because I know it's been hard on a lot of people. I've uh, been, I'm, I consider myself very lucky, man. I live with my girls, my wife and my daughter, and uh, we've been very close. And um, I think for my daughter in many ways, you know, she was lucky enough to continue to go to school. So in many ways, this has been the most secure life she's had because so many years she would have to fly somewhere. My wife would be doing a play in Toronto or I'd be on tour and she'd be pulled out of school for two weeks so she could come see me. And there was all that I was constantly traveling. So it was a very irregular, very interrupted life all the time. And now suddenly here we are together, you know, eating at the dinner table every night together and doing our routine. And so for her, I think it's been a beautiful thing, especially at a moment when she's, you know, coming into adolescence and, starting to pull away a little bit from us her the world of her friends has become very important to her and and so it's been a nice like slight delay in that moment of separation you know it's given us an extra year i feel like with her where she really is close to us and stays close to us and um i don't know how people who live alone have gotten through this and i don't think it's right and i think you know when we look back on this time again i don't know enough about epidemiology to know whether lockdowns in the end were were worth it or not but what i do know is like i don't think it's fair to ask people to be alone for a year for a disease that has a 99.8 percent survival rate i think we need to come up with a more imaginative way of getting through this allowing people to have some sort of a social existence uh, because i think this will happen again that seems to be what they say right so like, what can we learn about the, the emotional cost of being apart from each other? It's not natural. You know, one great thing, though, dude, has been realizing that this, what we're doing right here, it's not enough. Like, it'll be so much better when I meet you in person and we have a conversation. And it's not been enough for anyone. It's not going to replace social interaction. Zoom shows are not going to replace live shows. Zoom hangouts are not going to replace meeting your friend for a coffee. It just ain't the same. Yeah. So, and for so long, big tech has been saying to us, it's going to be just like, you know, they won't even miss it. And it's like, actually, I miss it more than ever. Like, I, I think, you know, Zoom will be synonymous with annoyance for most people in society for years to come. Like, when, this, when I get my vaccine, good luck getting me on a Zoom. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I will not be on a zoom i will come see your ass you know i'll yeah. come and see you um so but my my domestic life has been i'm blessed i love my girls they're kind to me my daughter recorded uh the rainbow connection she sang the rainbow connection and recorded it for me uh this morning so i've already wept three times the three times i listened to it 
before I spoke to you. So I've had a lot of catharsis and it's only 1130 in the morning. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's big catharsis day for me. Yeah, the, the, day, the day is young. Um, the day is young, yeah. And also, have you found that you've had to sort of adjust in terms of being a parent uh, when it comes time to like, normally you would say, look, that's a little too much screen time. Have you found yourself being more flexible about that? Yeah, that's a big one for me, man. You know, um, I mean, my girls, she's good. She's pretty self-disciplining and she's so obsessed with music with you know musical theater she just all she really wants to do is belt Barbara Streisand songs but definitely there are times when I am um anxious about the amount of time she spends on her screen you know whether it's at school or whether it's here and I think we have been too lax maybe but the thing is man is like where do you fight your battles and you know if your kid has doesn't have the ability to get together with her friends and doesn't have the ability to go see a movie and doesn't have like do you want to get into a fight with them and become an adversary with them or do you want a house where like at least they seem peaceful and happy now there's a limit to that obviously and we're fairly strict about it but i i certainly like no social media for my kid you know what i mean like when she can buy her own shit she can have a social media account until then forget it it ain't happening because i i truly believe that those those platforms are destructive especially for children um but i uh man i think for every parent this is just a massive thing right now you know is yeah. like how much how much do we allow for our children right now whether it's whether it's screen time or whether it's you know not being social or because they're dealing with the shit the way they're dealing with it and, and who can blame them. So it, we've all, we're all addicted to screens. I mean, this is the other thing about talk, talking to kids about screens is like, as you work six hours a day on your screen, you yell at your kid about how they're on a screen all the time. It's, you know, it's pretty hard to rationalize. Um, I don't know. I'd love it. I'd love it. Let me say this to you. If all computers stopped working tomorrow, I think on balance, yes, there'd be some catastrophe. Yes, there'd be some suffering. On balance, in five years' time, we'd all look back and be like, that was good. Glad that happened. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, it would, and it would be like, hey, remember the computer era? Yeah, yeah, like okay. the eight-track tape. Just, right. it's gone now. We didn't need it. We didn't need it. It turns <laughs> out we're okay. We just uh, need vinyl. We only need a record player. That was the height of human ingenuity, and that's, we should have stopped right there. That's right. The record player. That's all That's we right. need. I, I, I wouldn't really <laughs> probably complain. Um, yeah, me neither. I wouldn't complain I, I at all. I sort wonder also if, like, if the solution politically is, I mean, all the people making decisions, none of them are artists. And so, I mean, I wonder, like, if, yeah. somebody, if one of the politicians <laughs> was Mike Reno or something from Loverboy, maybe he'd be more sensitive to the fact that, like, people have gone, you know, he knows what the artist's life is like. So I wonder, really, if the problem is, is that people at the top who are making these decisions have no concept of what an artist's life is really like. I completely agree with you. And that is our, my podcast, Soft Revolution. We talk about this all the time. And actually, my, my partner in that, is running for office. He's trying to get the nomination for uh, the liberal riding MPP in Ontario. So he's putting his money where his mouth is. But I think that's one of the most important things you can talk about is how much we need more creative people in public service and in public office. 
And, you know, it changes the entire conversation when you have a creative person in the room. And I think that there is so many ways in which public policy would change if there was empathy and imagination as part of the argument. But you're right. I think that politicians don't know many artists and politicians like most people, and this is partly our fault, believe that artists live life of glamour and disconnection. And especially in rock and roll and in the film and TV industry, we have made hay out of that. We have traded on this false sense of glamour. We sell the, the, the idea that it's all sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and that we're grooving around in tour buses and life's a party. That is something that we as an industry have perpetuated. So it's not surprising that when you say to people, hey, we're going broke, they're like, what are you talking about? You're going broke. It's all hookers and blow for you, right? It's like, that's something we made up about ourselves. That's part of the rock and roll mythology. And I think a big obligation of the artists now, and that's part for, for me what Patreon is about, is recalibrating the relationship with the listener. I don't call people who listen to my music fans. That's to me, like they're fucking grownups. I, I, I'm not, that's not the relationship. I'm not some hero and they're not a fanatic. I make music and they listen to it and enjoy it. They're my listeners, they're my audience, they're my customers, they're my friends. They're people who I share a common aesthetic with. They're my community. So start from a place of community and I think you will be able to make the argument for art a lot better than if you start from a place of, ooh, mysteriousness and art is so, you know, this divine thing that must be protected at all costs. Art can be made by anyone, anywhere, at any time for very little money. And sometimes people who don't know what they're doing make the best art. So like, to me, you have to go to politicians and you gotta go to the public and say, hey, this is how we make art. This is what we make for it. This is the money we make for it. This is my life. I live a life just like you. I've got car payments and my kid goes to school. And, and then sometimes I try to summon up this mysterious thing where you write a song, right? But that's like, I mean, how, you know, brain surgery. We don't know what those guys are doing. I have no <laughs> idea. I, he could be like in a pact with the devil for all I know. I mean, he's fiddling around in there, but how the hell does he know what the fuck he's doing? I think it's all magic, you know? So everyone's job on some level is a mystery to everyone else. And um, I think we should be uh, more involved in our communities as artists and less, have less invested in being um, in this beautiful world of glamour that we cultivate for ourselves to make ourselves feel better, you know? And the mythology has always been such an essential part of- It has. Right? Yeah, yeah, it has, it has. But man, you know, those days are over. Like rock and roll, uh, pop music moves with the times. And they're not over because in, in top 40 pop, you know, consumerism and wealth and all that stuff is more, more important than ever, right? Like that's more, more a part of the aesthetic than ever. But I, I never was a part of that anyway. So it doesn't, that means nothing to me. I have more in common with someone, you know, who runs a small business, like a store, than I do with, um, you know, you uh, two or Billie Eilish or something. I don't. I don't know what their life is like. I don't do business the way they do business, and so I, I look around and it's much more akin to me to running a restaurant. What I do, there has been a kind of demystification about the Holy Grail album system, finding that vinyl. People yeah. 
I teach college and I can tell you my students, it's like, we, everything's digital. You just, you just pull it up and there it is. And so right. accessibility has taken away that sort of um, value, I think, of, of tangible tactile music. And you yep. might go, oh, what's the big deal? Well, the big, the big deal is throw in a pandemic. And, yeah. right? and that just sort of, that does become extinction level in terms of the commodification system of music. And then you have this NFT thing, you know, and everyone's like, oh, NFT is going to save us. It's like, this is, so now we're going to get involved in this absurd, you know, phony pyramid, big tech scheme. That's what's going to solve music. Listen, 20 bucks for an album. Okay. You take it home. You got a beautiful cover. A lot of the time you got a sleeve with the lyrics or maybe an essay, all the information about the people who made it. You put that thing on, you have it. I look around. I got, dude, that's, I've had that stuff for Decades. Yeah. I spent 20 bucks. It's the best deal out there for art. You couldn't buy. I mean, imagine I can go buy a Smith's record. That's the equivalent of buying a fucking Picasso. A Picasso costs $80 million. I can buy a Smith's record for 30 bucks. Like, I just don't get what, what, is, what is enough of a bargain to get people to, to pay a fair amount of money for yeah. music. It's crazy to me. But I get that if it's, you know, if you're 20 years old and music has just been like water that you turn on a tap and out it comes all of your life, that's the way you've interacted with music. Why would you suddenly start paying for music, right? It's like paying for oxygen. So it's not really ultimately the consumer's fault. It's the fault of the corporations that create structures that don't pay artists. So, you know, when people say to me, I, I, bitch about Spotify or whatever. And they's like, oh, I have Spotify. I'm sorry, but I come to your shows. And I'm sorry. It's like, don't be sorry, man. You, that's how music is accessed now. There isn't a record store on every corner. There, it isn't easy to go and buy a CD of your favorite new artist. That is actually not easy to do anymore. If you want to listen to music, you basically have to subscribe to a streaming service. But I would say to people, you know, please, please, please spend a little money on people you know, music you care about or a book you care about or, uh, or even better, spend a little money on local artists. Go and find a local artist in your community who's making something nice, making a, a book cover or a table or, you know, whatever. Go spend some money on somebody next door. I think there's a lot to learn um, from the African-American community over the last 30 years for artists in general, namely, Keep it in the community. Keep that dollar in the community, right? When, when you support black business, you support black people. When you support black people, you support black business. It's a benevolent circle. So if you support local artists, those local artists will support you. And to me, that's where we start to beat the devil. You know, the devil cannot interrupt that. They can't get that deep into us. So it's, it's something important to remember. Like, yeah, interact with the devil, but throw a little cash at your fellow human, you know, just, right. just to balance it out a little bit, you know? Yeah. And also, you know, looking at your vinyl behind you, it was such a social thing. It's like, if I was at your house for dinner and yeah. I walked in, I would look, I would start looking at your vinyl and I would have exactly. a glimpse into who you are as a person. And that was a kind of beautiful way to connect with someone like, Oh, I didn't know you had this Smith's 12 inch. Where'd you get this one from? Um, yeah. And that's a conversation. Oh, well, I was in, I was in Holland and this, you know, this thing happened every album also becomes a kind of timestamp where it transfers totally. back to where you got it. So that whole thing is something which is, I think, is really important, I think, for um, just for the social Congress of art, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. So 
I don't know. Well, let me ask you this as we, I, we're gonna let you go in a second, but the idea of getting into a car and driving 17 hours to Calgary, is yeah. that, that still appeals to you, right? Like, that's, Oh man, I, I would do it right now if I could. I, if I could play a show right now, I'd be like, see ya. And I'd just fucking run out of the room and go play the show. Um, yeah, man, it's, you know, I, I never played a bad show. I really never ever did, honestly. Like every single show I ever played, I had a moment of complete ecstasy and gratitude. That might sound hard to believe, but I really did. Like, you know, I grew up laying in awe on my bedroom floor, like plotting, plotting this life, you know, and listening to music so obsessively and caring so much about it. And the fact that I am able to play shows all over the world for people who listen to the music and enjoy it and are like, yeah, that's kind of like what I feel. That's kind of like my life. There is no, it, it is as good as advertised. It's extraordinarily great. The privilege and the um, luck of it all is immense. So yeah, of course I want to get back to it. Minute I can, dude, I'll be back. <laughs> how, how is the, in terms of what you're writing, um, are, how's the tone? of the music that you're working on. You know, it's funny, we started out last year writing, like just as we went into to quarantine, the guys started sending me stuff and I was working on it alone. And a lot of it was very melancholy. And as the year has gone on, this kind of gotten the hope meter on the music has kind of got the, like the BPMs have gone up <laughs> and you know, the major keys have sort of become more common. And so it's weird. It's like this kind of, we'll see what the album actually turns out to be, but you know, we are, we make stars music. We've made stars music for a long time. It's an, it's, um, it's a language we speak between each other. And, you know, the influences are always obvious that if you know them, uh, Micro Disney and Prefab Sprout and the Smiths and uh, Blue Eyed Soul and New Order and all those things. Um, and I don't, I think the magic of our band and the thing I'm proud of about our band is that we know exactly what we do and we like doing it. And we don't actually approach music as a kind of um, mode of self-expression. We approach it as a, a mode of collective expression. And so the language stays the same, but the people in the band change. And, and um, I think the music gets better because we're sort of slowly getting better as people. But the music is, you know, sounds like, uh, sounds a bit like New Order. That's, what can I tell you? <laughs> New Order played by better people. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, New Order with Anita Baker's engineer. That's, that's what I, that's my dream. That's my dream. Well, and I like what you said. I think the whole point of life is to every day become a little bit better as a person. That's the whole yeah. idea. And right. more yourself, right? Like just more yourself. So we're just becoming more ourselves, hopefully, and hopefully people will enjoy it. That's my sincere wish. Well, a very happy birthday to you. I, again, I'm oh, very thank grateful. you, man. Thank you. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Alex. Thanks so much. It was such a lovely conversation. I hope we get to meet soon and uh, have a drink and toast the future.
toasting the future with Torkel Campbell. Uh, that sounds like fun. By the way, that also sounds like a good name for a podcast. I gave you, speaking of podcasts, uh, the wrong information about Torkel's podcast. I gave you the one he did in the past, but the one that he's currently doing is called Soft Revolution. It is the intersection of art, culture, and politics, hosted by Torkel and Ali Momen. Uh, each week, they get together with fellow musicians, actors, and artists to discuss the latest in the world of art, society, culture, and politics. Visit them at softrevolution.simplecast.com. The nice thing about podcasts is you can make a mistake at the beginning and uh, correct it right here in the end. Uh, you can also visit Stars online. You should do that. Youarestars.com. Find out what's going on with the band and track all their latest news and releases. You can track all of my latest news at alexgreenonline.com. You can find out what makes Bombshell Radio tick at bombshellradio.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, leave us a rating, tell a friend, uh, have that friend tell another friend, have them report back to you to make sure they really did it. <laughs> How creepy is this getting? Uh, yeah, check your, check your friend's work. That's what I always say. Thank you, as always, for listening to our program week in and week out. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Fluorescent Light by Stars. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bobshell Radio. Ringtown in the nighttime Endless yellow taxis Waiting for the moment When the party will end Ringtown in the nighttime Still heard nothing from me But I've become invisible So what message could I send? Saturdays are lonely And Sundays you're alone Still checking for the signal For the buzz on the phone, phone, phone You can travel for a thousand miles you can spend a thousand nights alone You can lose your way so easily And never ever make it home So come out with me tonight Come out with me tonight No one falls in love on the fluorescent light Come out with me tonight Come out with me tonight No one falls in love on the fluorescent light No one's getting older Nothing ever changes And I will never lose you And you'll never lose me Just repeat that till I'm sleeping And then stay with me till morning And then I swear you can't erase me And then I swear I'll set you free I watch you put your coat on Close the bedroom door And then there's nothing but the memory of the dream I had That you don't love me anymore Why don't you love me anymore? You can tell me we were born alone 
wasn't meant to be But if you wait until the lights come on There's so much that you'll never see So come out with me tonight Come out with me Drive, drive. You can travel through.